There are rivers of all lengths and sizes and of all degrees of wetness. There are rivers with all sorts of peculiarities and with widely varying claims to fame. There's only one river with a personality, habits, dissipations, a sense of humor, and a woman's caprice, a river that goes traveling sideways that interferes in politics, rearranges geography, and dabbles in real estate, a river that plays hide-and-seek with you today and tomorrow follows you around like a pet dog with a dynamite cracker tied to its tail. That river is the Missouri. In this episode, we're going to play hide-and-seek with that river, often called the Big Muddy. The game will end in the middle of a farm field near Malta Bend, Missouri. But today, it starts in a special museum in Kansas City to meet David Hawley, who has a unique relationship with the Missouri River and its hidden secrets. Well, the first part is to find the metal, and the boilers and the engines will help find that with the metal detector. But once identified where that's at, you don't really know where the wood part is. It's deep underground, and the wood can't be detected. All right? So you bring a drill. Um, if you hit something at 25 or 30 feet, it's not a boat. Boats are deeper. Um, but you'll go down, if you've not hit it by 55 feet, maybe 60, then you've missed it. It's not either there or it's not a boat. David Hawley is a treasure hunter, a celebrity treasure hunter. I mean, I wouldn't call him a pirate, but his life mission is to find buried treasure on boats. But test drill and boats are much like playing the game Battleship, if you've ever played that with the little, wood, with the little plastic pegs. When you hit a, a, your opponent, then you know that you're kind of on the right track. When you miss, then you're gonna to have to go left or right. And drilling's much the same way. You drill down, and if you hit wood, you stop it, bring it straight out, and you'll find chips of wood. So then you, you correct, you hit it again, and continue on. You find the width on both ends of the boat, you can bring it in and find the ends. Then you compare that to the, to the size of the boat you know it to be. The Arabia is 171 feet. So if you drill something now that's 180 feet, well, you, you haven't found the Arabia, you found something else. The Arabia he's talking about is the name of an old steamboat that once navigated along the Missouri River. It's here, in the museum. David works to uncover steamboats that sank way back in the 1800s. About 30 years ago, he began his hunt for these sunken steamboats. Now, he has found 11, and dug up two. Sometimes boats are easy to find, like the Arabia. That took one day, found it within one day of searching. Why? A lot of it was luck. If you start on the right side of the field and start your walk, and there it is. If I had started on the far left side of the field, and I might have been two days walking for it. But it was, it was fairly well documented. It said that it sank a mile from Parkville. And so I'd done my mapping, find out where the river had, used, had once been, and then came down a mile, and that's kind of where I started. And they, they were right. The newspapers had printed it accurately. And if it's not clear by now, many of the steamboats that once sank in the waters of the Missouri River over 150 years ago are no longer in the water. They're buried underground, some under farmland a mile away from where the river once was. That might not make a lot of sense, because while there are floods every few years, the Missouri River doesn't actually move like that, does it? Well, not anymore. But to understand why so many riverboats sank, First, you need to understand the original Missouri River. Welcome to Show Me the State, the program where we explore the strange, misunderstood stories of Missouri's past 
and try to figure out what really happened. Why did it happen? And how has that shaped the state today? I'm Christopher Husted. You're listening to Show Me the State on KBIA 91.3 FM. Check out our other podcasts, The Obvious Question and The True False Podcast on KBIA.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to Show Me the State. The Missouri River that people in the 1800s found and tried to navigate in many of these doomed steamboats was much different than the one you see today. To find out more about what it was like back then, we're going to be talking with two Missouri River historians, Barbara Giles and Mike Dickey. If you can believe, there's probably over 400 wrecks on the Missouri. 400? Over 400. Wow. And about 70, 80%, easily 80% or more, were a function of uh, being sunk from hitting snags. Snags are the big problem, okay? And going upstream is when it's worse because as a tree comes downstream, the branches are sticking up waiting to impale you. Right. right. Okay. So upstream is the more serious. And when you say problem. snag, it's a tree coming out and just taking out part of the hole. Or it's stuck. Or gets stuck. Yeah. The snag is caught oh. in, in a rock or in a sandbar or, you know, it's hidden underwater. That's when they're really dangerous. And um, the winter was very harsh because if they froze in and the boats weren't able to get in a safe harbor or sometimes they'd even pull them out of the water if they could, even that big, they would get crushed. There wasn't much you could do about that. So these trees sticking out of the water, that's probably not all that different than what you might see on the river today. But these days, those are fairly predictable. Back in the 1800s, there was a lot more movement. Not the trees, of course. They sort of stayed put. But the river didn't. That was something Mark Twain said. He said that the river pilots on the Missouri were an entirely different breed than on the Mississippi. Because they had different challenges. They had, to. they had different challenges. And uh, uh, one of the standing jokes of that time about river captains was that as you went up the Missouri River, you had somebody with a, a teapot of water pouring water in front of the boat so it could get on upstream because of all the sandbars and the islands that they had to, to navigate around. And they didn't have so much of that in the Mississippi. The Mississippi was calmer, deeper. Uh, the Missouri was just turbulent. The water was fast and, and full of these sandbars. People often called them rolling sandbars you could have a sandbar and just all of a sudden it would collapse and reform downstream somewhere just in a matter of minutes. And the descriptions of that time was that you would hear this low ominous rumbling like thunder as one of these sandbars would shift. Well, if your boat was in the wrong place, it could roll your boat or hang you up all, all of a sudden. So essentially, if you're a captain of a steamboat, you likely are seeing a different river every time you make a trip up or down. A lot of times that's true, uh, especially if, if there's been spring floods. Uh, channels changed a lot, and so even though they might have maps of the river and charts, they were aware that the channel could change any time, and you had to read the water all the way up. These snags, constantly changing sandbars, and shifting floodwaters cause steamboats to sink all the time. 
Historians think about two out of every three steamboats that would set out on the Missouri River back then would at some point meet their watery grave. Since the waters were shallow, sometimes not even five feet, most of the cargo on the ship and the passengers were able to make it out alive. But sometimes it wasn't the river alone, but the boats themselves that were dangerous. On uh, April the 9th, 1852, the steamboat Soldana was uh, in Lexington and it was carrying about 190 Mormon passengers who were headed west. And uh, the boat had been coming up from St. Louis for some time. The river had been running high. The captain was running behind schedule because the higher the river is, the more your boat has to work to, to get upstream. And he be this was Captain Belt, and he became very frustrated. Well, they laid up for a couple of nights in Lexington because there was a hairpin bend in Lexington that he had trouble getting around in this high water. Well, finally, after a couple of days, he just decided he was going to go full bore, and he ordered the steam pressure of the boilers increased to maximum. Well, the boiler blew up. And, and it's a terrible explosion. I mean, the people are just burned unbelievably, and they found the captain on the next hill in pieces. Oh, and it killed all but about 40 people, and it's wow. still considered one of the worst river disasters in Missouri's history. So, I mean, it's, it's horrible. So they lost boats to that. So we know steamboats themselves had a lot of problems, some that could throw their captain across the river. But if the Missouri River was nearly impossible to navigate, why on earth keep using it? Well, the rivers were the original highways. Until railroads began proliferating in the state in the 1870s following the Civil War, Everybody depended on river commerce, and that's why you see that most of the towns in Missouri from uh, the Louisiana Purchase in 1803 up to the end of the Civil War, most of them were either on or just within a few miles of the Missouri and Mississippi River because that was their lifeblood. And then also, at the same time, there was uh, the fur trade that had been there but was um, really expanded when in um, 1808, a fellow named of John Jacob Astor founded his company called the American Fur Company. I mean, if you have a thousand beaver pelts up in Montana, you're not going to walk down with them. Yeah, so the river was it. During the 1800s, goods were being transported up and down the Missouri River. A lot of them, agricultural commodities that slaves primarily helped produce. In fact, the majority of people shoveling wood or coal into the boilers of the steamboats were slaves. They also manned many of the warehouses along the river. People also started using the boats as transportation. Residents in the east heard of new land, new opportunities, and a new way of life to explore. So they packed up their things, boarded a steamboat, and traveled along the Missouri River. The Americans at that time were absolutely land hungry, and Missouri was, was on the frontier. And, of course, the, the most fertile land was in the river bottoms. And the Missouri River, there was an old saying back then that, that if you planted a Ten-penny nail in Missouri River soil had sprout a crowbar by morning. So that was an old <laughs> saying in the 19th century. And, of course, the government was just 
getting Indians to sign these treaties and give up all this land, and then all these settlers would flood in and acquire that and start their farms over. And, and, and in fact, in the early 19th century, there were some people that said if you didn't change farms two or three times in your lifetime, you weren't a very good farmer. Hmm. Very, very different mindset than what we have today right. about about trying to be good stewards and conserve the soil and prevent erosion and stuff. They, they just didn't care. There was so much open land. More settlers snapping up farmland in Missouri and up the river meant more products moving down the river. Corn, wheat, cattle, hogs, barrels, and crates full. And then it was being sold markets in St. Louis, uh, Memphis, on down to, to New Orleans. And then... They were, uh, in, in terms of stuff uh, for daily living, uh, you know, everybody likes to think, oh, people on the frontier were living hard scrabble and, and making all their own stuff and so forth and so on. Well, that was only true for a very limited number of years. Once an area became truly settled and established and towns began to grow up, these people could get goods that were shipped uh, from New York, Philadelphia, that would come down the Ohio River, up the Mississippi, and up the Missouri. In the steamboat's glory days, right before the Civil War, there would be, on average, 60 boats traveling through different ports along the river each day. The better they made the boats, the more cargo and people they could carry. And eventually, they could reach the last port in Montana in 20 days. That's traveling over 2,500 miles. But the glory days didn't last very long. After the Civil War, during the 1870s, railroads just exploded everywhere. Railroads could uh, move goods faster, cheaper, year-round, whereas the river was seasonal. You had to have your boats on the river when there was no ice on the river, when the river wasn't too high or when the river was too low that you would bottom out all the way. Then there's the fact that during floods, the river would shift its course. Weston Bend, the river moved uh, two miles away from town. Wow. And uh, so it was a lot more difficult to load and unload. And you didn't have that problem with railroads. And it just, 1870s, 1880s, railroads virtually uh, opened up new areas of territory and towns were founded on the railroads and the river towns just kind of withered away and the steamboats just kind of became more of a passing memory. The buried steamboat history, excuse the pun, was once crucial in the way the economy of the state and the rest of the country expanded and thrived. Every state along the river was affected by the river and has its own history due to the people and the characteristics of that area. But Missouri had St. Louis and the Dam Fur Company, St. Charles, the first capital, all on the river. And then the state capital ended up on the river. You know, so I think you can't separate the history. The river is the history. Now, the only interaction Missourians may have with the river that once was the lifeblood of the state is driving past it, looking out at its beauty before becoming a distant memory as they continue to drive down the highway. Many railroads and the towns they helped create also eventually faded away. But the Missouri River left us clues for a map of how much the river changed over time and what life was like back then. 
the secrets of the buried steamboats in the middle of farmland. We'll be right back. You are listening to KBIA 91.3 FM and the Show Me the State program. Making this podcast and untangling complicated folklore takes time and money. So if you value this kind of journalism and storytelling, consider going to kbia.org and click the donate button. You're listening to KBIA 91.3 FM. Now, back to Show Me the State. In the Steamboat Arabia Museum in Kansas City, where celebrity steamboat hunter David Hawley keeps his findings from digging up the Arabia in the 1970s, Hawley points out a map on the wall. It's about 20 feet long, and it outlines where the river is today, and where it once was over 150 years ago. The double blue line is where the river is now. It's a much straighter line. And the lighter blue and brown is the old river, the Wiggly River, the river that the steamboats traveled because the river shifted so often. And the names on the map are boats that have sunk. Between Kansas City and St. Louis, there's about 200 wrecks. From Kansas City north to Fort Benton, Montana, the head of navigation for steamboats, another 200-ish. So on the Missouri, there's between three and 400 wrecks. The Missouri River is over 2,300 miles long, stretching from its Montana headwaters through the Dakotas, moving along the Nebraska-Iowa border, and then right across Missouri's midsection from Kansas City to St. Louis. The lines showing the current Missouri River and the older Missouri River at David's Museum reveal the dichotomy of the river's personality. You know, there's kind of two different Missouri River. There's actually many Missouri Rivers, um, but there's sort of the historic Missouri River, which has a character of its own, um, which plays out in the history of the river. But we've changed the river a lot. This is Steve Snar. He's the director of Missouri River Relief, a nonprofit group focused on the river health and education. The river that we have now actually has quite a bit of different character, but um, when you get out on the river, you can definitely tap into some of that um, quintessential Missouri River character. Um, you know, if you drive over it on a bridge, um, it, it looks big and it looks kind of interesting. And then you've just crossed the bridge and you have to pay attention to traffic, you know. So um, when you get out in the river in the middle of a canoe, in a canoe or a boat or something like that, you really start to feel how big it is and how much water it is. It really is one-sixth of our continent flowing down through the middle of the state of Missouri. Um, And being on that water, you really do feel that. Um, The bottom of the river is is basically sand and mud dunes. So as water rolls over that bottom and pops up to the top, it boils up. And it seems like there's a sea monster emerging next to you. Um, And most kids will sort of jump up startled when that happens just kind of gives you this flowing sense um, of power that the river has. And the power the Missouri River always had. Steve says the riverbanks were once all sand and mud, allowing the river to easily engulf the land around it and expand or move whatever it wanted to do. But all that shifting didn't just make it harder for steamboat captains to navigate. It also completely destroyed towns. When steamboats first started going up the Missouri River, one of the very first ones was called the Yellowstone. One of the spots that it stopped was Franklin, Missouri, which at that time was across the river from what is now Boonville. Franklin, Missouri, 
I mean, it's kind of funny when you read about some of these old towns. It's sort of before they really learn just what the Missouri River could do. So they decided to build this town basically on kind of a sand dune. And for anyone that knows the Missouri River, you know, it's a sand dune because a river flood put it there. But they were like, cool, it's cleared already. (laughs) So they started laying out streets, put ads in papers in, in New York, and this little sort of real estate bubble happened in Franklin, Missouri, right at the time that the first steamboat was coming upriver. So when the Yellowstone pulled into Franklin, um, the town fathers had had a big party that lasted for two days. And I I think because they got the captain too drunk to get back on the boat. But um, it was like one year later, the town flooded. And another year after that, the town flooded again. And like after 10 years, they moved up the hill finally. Uh, But it's kind of one of those stories that shows... um, how the relationship that, you know, westward expansion had with the Missouri River is that we would continuously learn just what this river had in its pocket. In 1844, a major flood swallowed the river port of Nashville in Boone County. As the banks eroded away, the church had to be moved up the hill. If you're from mid-Missouri, the river in front of Cooper's Landing is right about where Nashville was originally. Steve says this was really common. Towns often moved as the river did. After more than a hundred years of swept away towns and steamboat sinkings from the river's unpredictable waters, the Corps of Engineers in the 1920s began the process of what is known as channelizing. They took a river that was about three times wider on average than it is now and, and squeezed it through a pretty interesting process where they used all of the mud and sediment in the Missouri River sort of against the river. So they would basically run rows of wooden pilings out from the side of the river towards the center. Um, And those pilings would slow down the course of the river. And just like if you shake up a bottle of muddy water and then set it down, that mud settles out. When the river would get slowed down by those pilings, it would settle out mud and eventually literally create dry land. So A lot of the land that's now adjacent to the Missouri River actually used to be the river at one point. The river was initially channelized for two reasons. The first was to keep it in its place to prevent any shifts in course that could wipe out towns or damage farmland. The second is to make it easier for boats to navigate. These days, that mostly means barges traveling downriver full of soybeans and corn for export. So while the river still floods, and floods are seemingly becoming more frequent, the river will return to its channelized path. Steve says, looking forward, scientists have to keep an eye on the river's use for more than just transportation. Any big river like this really, it it is um, like taking the temperature of the region, you know, and the water quality is one aspect of that. So whatever we're doing on the landscape is going to be reflected in the quality of the water. You know, 42% of Missourians drink the Missouri River. It's their drinking water. So most of the city of Kansas City, most of the city of St. Louis gets their drinking water from the Missouri River, Jeff City's included. It, it's a big, important resource. Fresh water, they're not making any more of it. We're super lucky. And if we want a quality Missouri River, we're going to have to pay attention to what we do on the landscape. So there's essentially 400 steamboats that have sunk along the Missouri River at some point. What do you want to learn from, like, excavating old steamboats from the river? What do you think we could learn? 
Well, I think anytime you get a direct window into the past of things that people have not taken the time or care to save from our past, and when you have a moment like a steamboat where you have you have this moment in time that's been buried in wet sand and kind of kept preserved, things that it, you don't even know the things it can teach you until you dig it up, you know, and the things that you can learn about what your ancestors and the ancestors of the people that lived here well before us experienced. Back in the Steamboat Arabia Museum, David Hawley looks into glass cases filled with his treasures. Plates, shoes, cutlery, all from the 1800s. A lot of things came from overseas. We in this country, even by the 1850s, didn't have the artisans that Europe did. Dishes that we found came from France and England. Was there some things made in the United States? Yeah, but most of what was on this boat came from, was imported internationally. Um, we found tobacco that came from South America with all Spanish writing on it. We got perfume that came from France. We got Indian trade beads from Czechoslovakia and Bohemia. All of these items that were once buried 60 feet underground, encased in mud, are now on display cleaned and polished, as if they were just unpacked from the wooden crates after being unloaded from the Arabia in 1840. David is currently in the middle of digging up his third ship, the Malta. It's buried in the middle of farmland about a mile away from the current Missouri River. But it's a little bit different this time compared to digging up the Arabia 30 years ago. Well, on the Arabia, when we built, when we dug this one, we approached it much differently because we had no idea it was going to cost that much, nor were we thinking even doing museums. It was, it was a hobby, it was an adventure, and the five of us, me, dad, and brother, and a couple friends says, oh, we'll chip in 10 grand each, and for 50,000, oh my gosh, all the money in the world. So we started that way. But as projects tend to go, that money didn't last long. We begin to borrow um, from the bank. Most of our money came from there. The dig of the Arabia cost just under a million, but uh, the malt is three million. Money is not the only obstacle in David's way to dig up the next steamboat, the Malta. A new flood has stalled his work. Although buried in the middle of a field, the land the Malta is buried in is itself buried under five feet of water. Even if he had the $3 million, it wouldn't solve the problem of the Missouri River trying to act like the Missouri River. Show Me the State is produced at KBIA at the Missouri School of Journalism. Molly Dove produced this episode. The supervising producer and reporter is me, Christopher Husted. Our managing editor is Ryan Famuliner. Our theme music and original scoring was created by Columbia band Loose Loose. The piece heard at the beginning of the episode was written by George Fitch for American Magazine in 1907. Thanks to Steve Snar for reading it. Thanks also to the Reynolds Journalism Institute and to the Kinder Institute on Constitutional Democracy.